Good to have you here this morning with us, uh, whether you're brand new or been here for many, many times. Uh, real quick, before I get started, let me remind you, in July, we started a brand new series called Road Trip. All right, I know it's really early to talk about this, but we want you to send us your videos and your photos from the trips that you take this summer. So for some of you, that means you're moving, all right? Send us those moving trips. We don't know how hard it was for you, okay? Uh, for most of us, we're taking vacations or we're doing day trips locally here. Hey, shoot those to us because we're going to use those within this series. It's a nine-week series. It's our summer series. We hope you will do that or you're just going to see a lot of images of my family on vacation and Joel's family on vacation, all right? We, we want to see where you're doing and where you are going. So make sure you send those media at thejourneynova.org media at thejourneynova.org send those over the course of the summer we're gonna have some fun with that in this next series i uh i grew up in north carolina and growing up in north carolina i especially where i lived i became a wake forest university fan and if you grew up in North Carolina, you're familiar with North Carolina, you know there's Tobacco Road, right? There's four main colleges that kind of make that up. And uh, all of us Wake Forest fans and NC State fans and Duke fans have disdain for the fourth school in that quad. Yeah, thank you. You guys already know. The University of North Carolina Tar Heels, right? Absolutely hate that particular school and team. Uh, in fact, I mean, think about, those are the worst colors in the world for any college. Light blue, let's go win a football game with our light blue outfits on, right? And their fans are obnoxious and horrible. You already hear that, right? <laughs> horrible, horrible people. Uh, we have quite a few graduates from the University of North Carolina here, so uh, I love you guys. It's everybody else that we can't stand. Now, um, b before we moved here seven years ago, Kara and I, we planted a church down in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Hey, guess what school is in Chapel Hill, North Carolina? The University of North Carolina, Tar Heels. And so I'd have people ask me all the time, like, why would you plant a church in the town where the school is that you hate the most in your life? And the answer was always simple. Where do you think all the sinners live, right? <laughs> We listened to Jesus' command, and we went to the place where all the sinners lived. Well, we lived there seven years, and it was kind of funny. It was really kind of strange. As, as you start to ride around and you go places, you'd see flags on people's homes. You'd see their welcome mats. You'd even see the uh, license plate holders. And, and it would say the house divided, and you would see this kind of image up there. This means that there's a Carolina fan, because that's the real Carolina, not the one in South Carolina. That one doesn't even count. But... There's Carolina and Duke, right? And you've got these two fans that live together. Like, how did you two meet? And like, why are you still together, right? Because this definitely is a house divided. And that's because of the big rivalry these two teams have when it comes to college basketball. Well, today we're going to continue our series like Mike was talking about, Better Together. And we're going to talk about working together. That we don't want to get to this place where the church is a house divided, but the church is a house united. And so we're going to go back to this letter of Philippians. This is a letter this guy named Paul writes to this church community in Philippi. And in this letter, he's very encouraging. He's grateful and thankful. He's mostly positive. But there are some, some parts to this where Paul's giving warnings, and we're going to talk about that today. But Paul also makes this letter pretty personal. In fact, we come across this strange piece to it in Philippians chapter 4, the very end, verse 2. 
It says this. It says, now I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche. Now let me, let me stop for just a second. I don't really know if that's how you pronounce their names. But in Bible college, they said, when you get to names and places you don't know, you just run through it like you know it and keep going. Everybody's going to be like, oh, I never thought about saying it that way before, okay? So when you read scripture, that's just a little something for you. All right, go back to it. Now I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche. Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. Last week I said, kind of put yourself in the context of when this letter was being read, right? You live there in Philippi. You're part of this church community. There's probably 40 or 50 people that are in this church community with you. It's a Sunday evening. You're having worship at Lydia's house. You're out in the courtyard. And 85% of the populace was illiterate. And, and so when a letter would come, you'd have to have somebody read it. So somebody's reading this out. And, and as everybody's listening, you're probably like, oh, you know, I can't believe Paul said that. Or, oh, that's, that's really challenging to me. Or, oh, that's really challenging for our, our church. But then you got to this point in the letter. And you've got these two names of these two ladies. Can you imagine how awkward it was right there at that moment? Like everybody's probably starting to sweat. Like, ooh, can't believe Paul brought that up. Those two ladies are sitting right over there. It'd almost be like me coming up here on a Sunday morning and not using illustrations and not using any hypotheticals, but saying, hey, here's my example today. You know so-and-so here at The Journey? Let, let me tell you what they said. Let me tell you what they did. I mean, this church would shrink really, really fast. Not as fast as me losing my job here, right? But that's really what this would have been like for them to hear these words from Paul and to hear these particular names in this letter. Well, the truth is, Paul doesn't give us any clarity as to why these two ladies are quarreling. Um, but, but what we can kind of gather is either they can't work through it or they haven't begun to work through this dispute that they have. But why does Paul share this personal piece to this letter? Well, I think it's because Paul is trying to remind this church that disputes, if not dealt with in healthy ways, if not worked through, can cause division in the church. And so Paul is reminding them, hey, you need to be a church united and not a church divided. You need to work together. You and I, we deal with disputes all the time, don't we? Like if you have a job and you work with people and you're on a team, you probably have disputes with people that are on that team and they probably have disputes with you. If you're married, you've probably had one or two disputes in the course of your marriage, Right? One of you says, hey, I really think we need to have two more pillows for the couch. And the other one says, well, I think we got about 250 on there right now. I think we're good, right? <laughs> There's this dispute that happens. But we see disputes everywhere. We see them in relationships. We see them at school. We see them in the ball field. We see them everywhere. Disputes happen. But where do these disputes come from? Well, so often they come from our preferences. And the preferences that we have become more important than the vision that we're a part of or the whole that we're a part of. And so those preferences lead to these disputes, which if not dealt with, can lead to division. And once the one place where we see preferences take over, disputes happen, and division become a part of an organization more than what we call the church. Some of you are here today because of that. Maybe you grew up in the church or you're part of the church for a while and 
there was disputes and division that took place and and you left the church. You're like, I don't don't wanna be a part of that. So maybe you're back here at the journey and you're hoping and praying that this church will be different for you. Uh, Others of you, you were at a church and you came here because of uh, the actions and words and disunity and division that was taking place in the church you were part of. You're like, this isn't what I I signed up for. And and so maybe you're here because you're hoping and praying that, that this church will be different for you. I can tell you here at The Journey, we hope and pray that this church will be different for you. But, please realize, here at The Journey, we are still humans. And sometimes our preferences can get in the way of what is happening within the church and what God has intended for the church to do and for the church to be. It's very easy for those preferences to show up in our lives. And when they do, we can miss out what's most important. And that's what Paul is trying to get to here. Paul is talking about there's something so much more important than the disagreement these two ladies are having. There's something so much more important than uh, the preferences that we have. And what is that? To live out the mission of Jesus here on this earth. And so some of what Paul writes here is actually a warning. A warning that if you're not careful, this could be a house divided. And so how do we make sure that we are heading in the same direction? Well, if we go back to earlier in Philippians, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul actually shares some really great insights of how to get beyond these preferences that we may have, how to move beyond these disputes that maybe we feel, and of course, to be a house united and a house divided. Now, last week, as we were reading, we read chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And and I told you last week, I said, that really is Paul's thesis for all of Philippians, right? Paul's like, here's the whole main idea of all of Philippians. And like I said last week, those verses were actually one long, drawn-out, really complex sentence. Like, Like, there was no punctuation in it. And part of that, I said, well, he does this because he's trying to make a point, right? He's trying to say, this is really important, and you need to understand this. You need to make sure that you're putting this to heart. Well, what we're going to read today, Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 4, is actually the same thing. It's one really long, drawn-out, complex sentence. Now, why does Paul keep doing this? Well, I'm going to give you another reason. And another reason is that in those days, papyrus was what you wrote letters on, and it was very expensive. And Paul doesn't have a whole lot of money, right? We've talked about how the the church and people are supporting him to help him survive, just to live where he is. He's under house arrest in, in Rome. And so you would get this papyrus, and what you would do is you would write, you would try to cram as many words as you could into one page. And so oftentimes that meant you would leave out punctuation. And not only that, but you wouldn't leave any spaces between the words. Now, can you imagine trying to read that and decipher that if you're the person reading this letter out loud? Well, that's part of this. But I also believe Paul's doing the same thing here that he did in chapter 1. That he's trying to make a point. He's trying to say, hey, what I am telling you right here is so important. I want you to focus on what I am saying here, especially when it comes about working together. What does Paul say? Philippians 2, starting with verse 1. He writes this, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, 
having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Go back to the very first line there. Paul writes and starts with the word therefore. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. This part of Paul's writing here actually does two things. The first thing it does is it points back to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And if you were here last week, we said really the main point of everything he writes there is really the first line of, of that passage, live as citizens of the gospel of the king. And so for Paul, everything hinges on that one truth. He's like, if you follow Jesus, if you live a life for Jesus, this is what it looks like for you to live your life on a daily basis. And he says, we do this together, no matter what's happening around us, no matter what's coming our way. And so to connect back to that, Paul really brings up uh, these therefore, this therefore statement, and he, and he shares this reminder of why, of why this is also important. He, he talks about encouragement. Uh, that word used there is a word that was used to describe a teacher encouraging a student. Hey, you need to be encouraged because of your connection to each other, because of your connection to Christ. Then he uses the word love. That's the, the word unconditional love. And he's like, you've experienced this through, through Christ, through Jesus dying for you. And, and then there's the phrase common sharing. The word that's used there is the word we talked about in the very first week of the series. We call it fellowship, but it's the, word, the Greek word koinonia, which means it's our relationships. And in our relationships, we're on mission together, that we do this together. And then lastly, there's tenderness and compassion. Uh, sympathy, empathy would work he well here, but, but are we caring for others no matter what? See, see, here's Paul saying, this is why all those things are important. You, you see what the outcome of this when you are united together, uh, doing what it takes to live out the mission of Jesus. And so he's looking back, but he's also looking forward. The statement we just read is actually a bridge uh, between those two things, between the unity of the church and, and the enemies they were facing. And then this next piece we're going to look at here in a second and the importance of this church community and their internal relationships with each other. But he's answering that question of why. When we lived in Chapel Hill, it was a really nice day out. So I had the two youngest kids at the time, Avery, who just graduated from high school this week, uh, was around eight years old, and Jake, who's finishing up his freshman year in high school next week, um, is, uh, was about five years old. We're driving around in the car, and uh, got the windows down. Again, really nice day outside, and Jake has his arm out the window. And so I see him, I'm like, hey, Jake, can, can you get your arm back in the window? And, and Jake asks the question that every kid in the world has asked for eternity, and will ask for eternity, right? The question of what? Why? Exactly. You've heard it a few times yourself. Why? Why do I need to pull my arm back in the window? Well, before I could answer, my eight-year-old daughter, Avery, says, Jake, when you're 21, you can drink. When you're 21, you can smoke. And when you're 21, you can put your arm out the window. <laughs> the kid was wise beyond her years. I didn't even answer. I was like, that's a great answer right there. So... Um, Hopefully they'll follow that line of logic. 
But that's what Paul's doing, right? He's answering this question of why. Why should we live as citizens of the gospel? Why should we be reminded of these things? And Paul says, here's why we should be reminded of these things and live this way. But it points to this next piece, okay? But there's something else I need you to understand about this writing and this passage in this really one long sentence. There's actually only one verb in it. Everything we just read, okay? There's only one verb. And some of you are like, I know I slept in English class in high school, but I read more than one verb there. Well, again, there's only one verb. Let me kind of explain that. Uh, There are about 450 different translations of um, the New Testament, the Greek New Testament, into our modern English language, okay? Why are there so many translations? Is it just so people can make money off of us? Uh, That may be the case for some people, but the reason is pretty simple. We really can't translate Paul's Greek language word for word into our English language today. Like they are very, very different languages. And so if somebody comes to you and like, hey, I've translated the Greek New Testament into, into English and it's perfect. One, they're lying to you, okay? Secondly, they may be trying to make money off of you. Third, if you tried to read what they wrote, you and I would not be able to understand what they had written. And so that's why we have so many translations today. And so in this really long passage we just read, Philippians 2, 1 through 4, there's only one verb in that whole long sentence, and it's these words, and it's actually a phrase that we have, then make my joy complete. Paul says, then make my joy complete. That is the verb here, and everything before that is the why, and everything that comes after this is the how. But Paul throws in a a command here too. He says, then make my joy complete, by being like-minded, by being like-minded. That's his command. Be like-minded, be on the same page, stay focused on the same thing. Many of you here are leaders, and if you lead people, you know this is probably one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? That one of the hardest things to do is to get everybody on the same page, moving in the same direction. And, And so much of that goes back to our preferences. There are things that we prefer. There are things that I want. There are things I desire. And and too often those things, those preferences, get in the way of being like-minded. And so Paul's purpose here is he's trying to remind this church, don't follow your preferences. That's going to bring about disunity. That's going to bring about disputes. That could bring about division. And, And maybe that's part of what we read in Philippians 4. Some scholars say there were some sort of preferences there that these ladies had and they couldn't come up with agreement on there. Some say it was a theological question. Again, we we don't know. But in that, Paul is striving for unity within this church community. And he wants to remind them of what is most important and to be focused on what is most important. To be like-minded. But again, that's a struggle for any organization and and especially for something like the church because our preferences so often can take over and those preferences lead to disputes which can lead to division. And so I have a question for you that I want you to answer in your your head. Why are you here? Like, why do you attend the journey? Now, I'm guessing that probably part of that is preferences. Now, Paul doesn't say preferences are bad. Paul says when preferences get in the way, what's most important, right? But, but that's a good question for us to answer. Why, 
Why are you here? Maybe you attend because of the speaker. Yeah. And who could blame you, right? Just kidding. All right. That's very awkward. I feel terrible about even saying that. Anyway, let's keep moving here. Um, but it could be. Maybe you're here because of the speaker. Maybe you're here because of the, the worship pastor. Maybe you're here because of the demographics that we reach. Maybe you're here because of the music style or the preaching style or our involvement in the community or the material our, our kids' classes use. And let me tell you this. If that is most important to you, it's only a matter of time before all that falls apart. And you get to this place where your preferences take over and, and you decide, well, this isn't the place for me. But let me ask you this. What happens when the speaker is gone or the music style changes or the community group that we are on, focusing on and trying to help the needs, meet the needs of in our communities, not a group that you care for? What happens in those moments? What are you left with? You're just left with your preferences. That's it. And you know what? When we focus on that and not the mission that we're on, together when we can't put those aside we get upset we get angry we start to cause problems we bring about disputes and again as many of us have seen in our own experiences in church that can bring about division and then that church is never the same and it's because we're always chasing these preferences in our life that honestly do not matter. And yet here's Paul who's talking about the power of a house united. He's talking about how important it is to work together with one mind and one purpose. That that should be our focus and that we put those preferences aside. That we live as citizens of the gospel of the King. But how can we make sure that we are doing that? How can we make sure we're unified in this mission? How can we make sure that we don't become a house divided? Well, look at what Paul says in here. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Scholars believe the only other place this term, selfish ambition, is used in ancient writings is actually in Aristotle's politics. And in politics, Aristotle writes about how the main cause of social unrest and war and even the downfall of leaders in government was selfish ambition. But then we struggle with this, don't we? I, I struggle with this. I have to ask myself, where is my heart in, in this? Why, why do I do what I do? Because in the church, this can look like people who are hungry for power or people looking to be the center of attention or, or people looking to be up on stage with a mic Blinding lights, sweating, right? This could, this could be it. And again, I ask myself that question a lot. Why, why do I do what I do? Because here's Paul says, you cannot have selfish ambition within the church because it will bring about a house divided. He continues on here. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. When you ask people how they're doing, there's two answers you usually get, right? Fine and while I'm really busy. So what if you ask somebody sometime, you're like, hey, how are you doing? They're like, I'm, I'm good. And you know what? I'm not really busy at all. I mean, I have a minimum wage job. I work from nine to five. I come home. I play Call of Duty till eight. And then at eight o'clock, I stop and uh, I watch, you know, manifest episodes on Netflix. I'm good. My life's not busy at all. 
Now, what would you and I think about that person? We would think they're crazy, right? And we would even question their existence in our society. Like, why are you here? Are you even a good member of society if you're not busy? Well, see, for us in our culture, we equate busyness with importance. The busier I am, the more important I am. So we do everything we can to be busy to say, look at me and how important I am. But guess what happens in the church when you think you're more important than others? It causes problems. It brings about disputes. It brings about disunity, which can lead to a house divided. And and what can some of these issues be? What are these important things for us? It's our preferences. It's our agenda that we may have. And so this vain conceit that Paul writes about can take over. And we can think that we're more important than the whole. That's why for me, I, my, my life verse is Galatians 6.3, where Paul says, you are not that important. Like, that's what I live by. It's a reminder to me that I am not that important. And maybe that's a verse that you and I all should live by together. But Paul's like, hey, dude, don't, don't have vain conceit in your life. It's going to mess up the church. Then he continues. He says, rather than humility, value others above yourselves. Paul writes about humility a whole lot in his letters. And some scholars actually believe that Paul's use of the word humility in his writings are the first ones uh, that we have in ancient literature. And the reason's pretty simple because in the ancient world, humility was not a virtue. Humility wasn't something that you were to look up to. Humility was something that was frowned upon. Now, who was expected to be humble? Slaves. Which is kind of interesting because you go back to the very first of part of Philippians. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Paul introduces himself like, hey, Paul and Timothy, what's he say? Slaves of Jesus, right? He's saying we are working hard to be humble. So Paul really may have been one of the first people to write about the importance of humility. And Paul talks about it a lot. But if we want to talk about humility, then let's talk about its opposite. Let's talk about pride. I've heard it put this way, that pride is a mirror. What do you do with a mirror? You look at it to see your reflection back, don't you? And so if we kind of think about pride, it really hits us in, in two ways. There's a the pride where we look at ourselves and we see all the good. We see all of our accomplishments. We see all of our education. We see the size of our bank account. We see how good we look and how nice those clothes are. I mean, that's what pride does. We look in the mirror and, and we see this reflection back. It's kind of like, um, I don't know if any of you have been to the gym in the last, you know, seven, ten years. Uh, I don't know how many people actually work out and how many people are looking at themselves in the mirror as they work out, Right? taking photos, selfies, all that kind of stuff. But, but that's what we're talking about here. That, that's the one way pride works. But pride also works on our insecurities. We, we can look in the mirror and we, we see those insecurities. We see those flaws. We see the zit on the forehead. We see the nose that we got from our mom's side of the family. We, we see our bald head that we can't control. We see the things about our body we don't like, the things about us we don't like. And so pride's not only about the good things that we see, but it also can be related to our insecurities and our flaws because pride is looking in a mirror. Humility is looking through a window. And when you look through a window, what do you see? You don't see how great you are. You don't see how insecure that you may be. You see something else. You see the world around you. And as you see that world, you see the needs that are there in that world. And you get lost in the needs of others. 
And so Paul says, be looking through a window, not at a mirror. Don't be looking back at yourself. Look through a window to see the world around you. Be humble. Don't get stuck in your pride. And value something like humility. But he continues on. It says, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Again, for Paul, this is a reminder that this church community isn't about you or your preferences. It's not about me or my preferences. It is about focusing on other people. It's about living this other-centered life that we are on mission together in. Again, Paul doesn't say, forget about your interests. He says, hey, make sure you're looking to the interests of others. Make sure you are looking through that window and seeing the needs of others and help and support and be there for the people around you. That's when the church is functioning and working together. So Paul says, this is how you keep a house united. But how does that affect you and I? Well, I think it goes back to that question I asked a little bit earlier. Why are you here? Is it because of your preferences and, and we meet those preferences for you? Is it so you can be seen by others? Is it so you can live out the selfish ambition? Is it because of your, your pride? Or are you here because you truly believe we are better together? when we are working together, when we put those preferences aside and we say, hey, there's a bigger mission that we have been called to, to help more and more people. As we say it here, take their next steps towards Jesus. And we understand that the church brings the hope, the hope of Jesus to the world that we live in. Is that why you're here? In the end, I may not be the University of North Carolina Tar Heel fan. But you know what? That's okay. Because we can have division when it comes to our sports allegiances. What's not okay is for the church to be a house divided. Because we are called to be a house united. And when we are united, God can use us in incredible ways to make a difference in this world, through this place, through you and I. Now, let me say this. When you preach a sermon like this, there's those of you sitting there like, something's going on here, <laughs> right? What's the problem? Hey, honestly, this is a pretty, actually, this is a very healthy church. And anytime questions have arisen or disunity moments have kind of reared their head, um, this church has done an amazing job, even before I got here, of, of sitting down with grace and humility and compassion and open ears to hear and to work through those things and to deal with them pretty quickly as, as needed. Because this church understands that a house divided is going to fall on itself. But a house united, God will use to do amazing things in your life, in this church, in this community, and in our world. My prayer is that we will always be a house united, living out the mission of Jesus as we work together.